Father, we love you, and we are so grateful to be gathered together as a church family here in your house to worship, to sing, to remember who you are and all that you've done for us. We thank you uh, for the chance to pray to you, that you hear our prayers, that you are God in heaven, and yet you are near to people like us. Thank you, Father, for your love. And we thank you for your word, that you haven't left us to wonder who you are or what you are like. You have revealed yourself and your heart to us through scripture. So we pray now as we consider these truths from your word, we pray you'd teach us, shape us, change us, convict us, transform us uh, by your word, by your spirit, and through our time together. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, everybody, if you have a Bible, join me uh, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. This is going to be the last week kind of of the summer where we're doing some different teaching things. The month of July, if you were here, uh, we saw some uh, teaching on Sabbath and rest from Pastor Lee. We looked at uh, the idea of deep soul rest from the parable of the prodigal son. And today we're doing a bit of a camp recap. And so as you can see, I'm wearing the camp shirt. The theme was in his image. We got some pictures of our students that were at camp this past week. We just got home yesterday yesterday. Um, thank you for praying for us. Uh, we really, it, it was a miracle that nobody got sick on the trip. Nobody had to go home early from the trip. No one had to go to the hospital from our group. It was truly, uh, I get sick on trips all the time, all the time. And the fact that I'm uh, still standing here today is a testament to the, God's goodness and your prayers. And so thank you for praying over our group. It really was an incredible week. And so again, we're going to do something a little different this morning. Rather than jumping into the book of Acts, we'll jump back into our teaching through Acts next Sunday. Uh, and for the fall, but for this morning, I wanted to have a chance to talk about camp and some of the things that our group of 19 learned. Um, we were gone for a whole week, and there was a lot of fantastic teaching and time of worship and time in Bible study. Uh, and so I, I want to go back to some of these core concepts for the theme of camp and bring them back and share them with you, because they're truths from Scripture that aren't just applicable for young people and students, um, but they're applicable for all of us. And so I was really encouraged by the teaching there. Before I go into that, though, I do want to just share uh, or say a special shout out to Ann Lopez, Zachary Gramlow, uh, my wife Amber, who volunteered a good chunk of their time this entire past week to be at camp with our students. Um, they didn't have to be there. I kind of had to be there. You know, I'm on, you know, on the payroll. But they just volunteered, okay? And they just said, hey, yeah, we'll go and dedicate our time, volunteer. And they were phenomenal. Uh, we had a, a great team of leaders uh, that were loving the students. I think Zach was the favorite of the guys. Zach's way cooler than me and was able to connect with them in such a great way. So, Zach, we're grateful. I don't know if Ann's here this morning, but Ann, we are grateful. Amber, we're grateful. Um, 
It was a really special week. You saw some pictures in the background. This is our picture from the last night of camp there in our kind of church group time room. As you can see, we're still smiling, even at the end of camp. Um, We're still happy to be together. Uh, Camp was full of, again, times of worship and teaching and Bible study. Also games and rec and fun and craziness and mega relays and running all over the place. Um, So we learned a lot together, had a lot of fun together. Some of my favorite moments from camp, just so you know, were the interactions I had with the students. There were some great one-on-one conversations where we'd be walking from the cabin to the dining hall or from one event to the next, and I was able just to to slow down and, and talk with some of them and hear their hearts and hear what God was doing in their lives. And I was really encouraged by the things that I heard and how aware these students were, how reflective they were about what God was doing in their lives and what God was teaching them. Uh, We really have a great group. Every night we gathered in that room for some church family time or church group time where all the, there's about 20 different churches up at camp. And in the evening after the chapel session, we break off into our church groups and have just dedicated time as a, as a church family talking through some of the things we had been learning, uh, bonding together, getting to know one another even better. And, and that time was, was really, really sweet because some of the day we're like running all over the place in different groups and Bible studies and activities. But every night we had that, uh, chance to come come together and connect. One of my favorite stories came from Cece, who, there's a picture of Cece. Um, She was a blast all camp, and one of the most encouraging parts of camp was a conversation with her on the last day where I asked her what was one of her favorite parts of camp, And, and she told me this, and um, she shared that during Bible study, there was this concept uh, of one sin, but also the, the grace and forgiveness of God, and how no matter how big our sin is, no matter how bad we feel about our sin or how we believe it maybe separate, it does separate us from God, no sin is too big to be forgiven. God's grace covers all of it when we come to him. And I heard from Cece just a joy and a refreshment, just a reminder of the gospel that we can be forgiven and God's grace and mercy is so big that no matter what we've done or where we've been, uh, his mercy and grace is big enough to handle it and bring us uh, into relationship with him. So I was so encouraged by what I heard from Cece. Um, so what we're going to do as we go this morning is I want to take you through kind of the theme of camp and kind of the big ideas from the teaching and the worship so that we all uh, are able to kind of uh, hear the same lessons that our students heard from this past week. For the students in the room, it'll be a bit of a recap, a bit of a review, things you've been hearing all week. But for the rest of us, Uh, It'll be a chance, again, to come alongside them and get up to speed with the things that they have been hearing. It's going to be like going to camp for you all, minus the mountains and the lack of sleep and the body odor and everything that goes with it. So you get the full camp experience, minus a few things, by hearing what we were talking about. And hey, some of these verses, I'll just say at the start, are going to be familiar core uh, doctrine and foundational verses that maybe you've heard before or you've known since you were little. And if, you, th- if that's you, that's okay. And I want to invite you to lean in because I think that most often we need to be reminded of things that we already know more than we need new information. 
right? We need to learn how to really embrace and live out what we already know. Sometimes we're like, I need new information. I need deeper study. I need more info. And it's like, most of the time we don't. Most, if we've been around church for any length of time, we probably know and have heard the things we need to know. We simply need to embrace them and even hear them again. And so if you're one of those people who says, I've already heard this. This is boring. I've been there before. I, I hope you step on a Lego because... <laughs> Please, if that's your attitude, just say, hey, no, this, this is for me, too. Even though I've heard this before, there's, there's something for me here. The theme of camp this year is what this graphic shows in his image. Like the shirt says, uh, we spent all week unpacking truly this foundational doctrine known as the image of God or the Imago Dei, if you speak or read Latin, which says that, that you, along with every other human being, are made in the image of God. Take a second, turn to someone next to you, look them in the eye and say, you are made in the image of God. Good job. Good job. Well done. Hey, that was a little bit of uh, taste of camp, by the way, because at camp, they're like always telling us to do stuff. Like, raise your hands, put your hand down, sit up, stand, you know, sit, sit down, stand up, move this, do this way, move your hands this way, do a, you know, armpit check, make sure you're okay and with deodorant. They're just all constantly telling us to do this. So you guys were great. You responded really well. Thank you for, for listening. So we are made in the image of God. This, this truth comes from uh, page one of the Bible. If we look, if you have your Bible again, in Genesis chapter one, we read there of creation and we read of uh, God's work in verse 26. It says this, then God said, again, chapter one of Genesis, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the theme for the week in his image is based off of this text, that we are made in the image of God. When we go back to the creation account in scripture on page one of the Bible, we see that yes, God created all things, the heavens and the earth and everything in between. But when he created us, human beings, he made us unique. We are actually the only thing in all of creation that scripture says is made in the image of God. There's something different and special about human beings, different from the rest of the created world. And there's so much relevance here for us today, for young people today, and I know you might be tempted here to check out, tempted here to say, I don't know, this sounds like a lofty, uh, theoretical, uh, theological idea that's kind of in the clouds somewhere. He's talking about Latin up there. I don't know, does this have any relevance to my life today? But please, again, stay with me here. This is so important. We are created in the image of God. Here's why. We're, we're all desperately trying to figure out who we are, why we're here. Especially young people today have such big questions about identity, like who am I? Where do I fit in? 
Where do I belong? Why am I here? Is there any purpose or meaning in life? Is there any bigger story that all of this is connected to? And adults in the room, we know that those questions often don't always get resolved in our teenage years. Often we're still in adulthood trying to figure out and wonder, who am I? Why am I here? What does my life really need to be about? And so I was so glad that for our students, the staff of the camp was able to take a week to unpack this concept that you are made in the image of God and therefore your life has incredible value. Your life has great purpose. God sees you and has made you for a reason. The Bible says you're made in the image of God. See, in the ancient world, that phrase, image of God, or that title, the image of God, was sometimes used to describe rulers or kings or those who were elite and powerful, who saw themselves as representing uh, a God or the gods on earth by their rule and their power and their authority. And these rulers, or these, these few select elites, would try to remind the peoples of that, that they, perhaps, were the image of God. And so they put their images on coins, or they put statues around the empire of the emperor or of the pharaoh or whatever to remind people, here's who is in charge. Here's who represents the gods. But the Bible claims that all people... All human beings, not just a few elite rulers or kings or powerful people, but no, all people are made in God's image. We all bear his image, no matter how big or small we are, no matter how young or old we are, no matter the color of our skin or the language we speak, we are image bearers of the triune God. And so I want to unpack just for a minute what this means, that we are made in the image of God. Some of the implications of this that we talked about while we were up at camp. The, the first implication is that as image bearers of God, we have, human beings have, unique capacities. We have unique capacities for love and relationship and connection and consciousness, right? We can actually think about thinking, we are aware in a way that dogs and ducks and trees are not. So we have these capacities, these relational abilities where we actually look like God more than anything else in all of creation looks like God. We have these incredible capacities for innovation and creativity and developing technologies and accomplishing incredible human feats. As image bearers, we have unique capacities. The one we hit on probably the most this week was the fact that as image bearers, we have unique value. Human lives are really the crown of God's creation. Right in the creation account, finally he creates men and women last in his image and declares it is very good. And actually later in Genesis chapter 9, Scripture will tell us that there are serious consequences if you take a human life. And the reason given there in Genesis chapter 9 is that humans are made in the image of God. 
So if you take a human life, if you take the life of an image bearer, there are grave and serious consequences. Human lives are precious to God. This is why we should fight to protect unborn lives. This is why we should fight to protect and care for the elderly. This is why we should care for and include those with disabilities. This is why we believe in universal human rights. It doesn't matter if you're poor or an immigrant or have a low social status or no social status. You matter to God because you are made in his image. Those in the secular world, many would agree with the concept of universal human rights, but there's not really a foundation or a reason why. But as believers, there's a very clear reason why we should love and serve and seek to honor and protect and value all human beings. It's because, Genesis 1 says, we're made in the image of God. And so all people have unique value before God, their creator. They're worthy of dignity and love. Think with me of the the proverbial train coming down the track conundrum. A train's coming down the track and somehow it splits or whatever and there's there's two things that are in danger and you have to choose one of them to save. You can only rescue one of them. The train's coming down the track and you have uh, Joe over here and over here you have a mountain goat, let's say. Uh, And you can only save one of them. You only have time to rescue either Joe or the mountain goat. Which one should you save? Joe, right, it's not a trick question, good job. We should save Joe. Now again, if you had Joe on one side and a and hundred mountain goats over here, which one should you save? Joe. Joe, yeah, it's not a trick question, good job. Now again, if you had Joe over here and you had a thousand mountain goats over here and you can only save one of them, which should you save? Joe, yeah, it's not a trick question. Good job, Joe, because it doesn't matter if there's 10 or 100 or 1,000 mountain goats or bears or um, dogs over here, as much as we all love dogs, if they're cats, who cares, let them go. If they're dogs, it would break our heart. (laughs) But Joe, if Joe is a human being, he's made in the image of God, which means his life has unique value far beyond the animal kingdom. Any number of them you could stack up because he's made in the image of God. We have unique capacities. We have unique value. We have unique responsibility. Unique responsibilities allow us. And actually, if we look back to Genesis chapter 1, it tells us, as we read, God makes men and women in his image, and then he gives them work to do. Remember when we read that? It says, let's make them in our image so that they would rule over the birds and the the fish in the sea and all of creation. And then a few lines later in Genesis 2, 15, it says that they are to, they're put in the garden to work it and to care for it and to cultivate it. They're given the job to see that all of life flourishes in God's good world. And so as image bearers, they're given the job to rule over creation with God, partnering with him, representing him and his good care over all things in our world. That's our job. It's called the creation mandate. God didn't give the the mountain goats 
that we just let die. He didn't give the mountain goats or cows or whatever the responsibility to be stewards of all creation. When there's a humanitarian crisis, we don't call in the mountain goat relief team. We don't get golden retrievers or ducks around the conference table in a boardroom somewhere to figure out how we're going to solve poverty or homelessness or humanitarian relief, although that might make a great reality TV show. (laughs) Paw Patrol is cool and all as a kid's show, but we know that in real life, Marshall, Rocky, Chase, Rubble, Zuma, Sky are not going to show up to save the day. No, God has given his image bearers, human beings, a unique responsibility to see that life and creation flourishes under their care. We're made in the image of God. And often we fail, and often we have not upheld this responsibility very well, and yet that is part of our calling. So, we're made in the image of God with unique capacities, unique value, unique responsibility. But the theme of the week in his image continued, and the plot thickened, because we went on to study the next segment of the week, which was titled, Image Distorted. Because we know, if we know our Bibles, something in the story went horribly wrong. Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, and ever since, we've been going our own way trying to be our own God, determining good and evil for ourselves rather than humbly submitting to God's ways and God's laws. We're sinners thus by nature and by choice, and our world is broken. And so at camp, they did a phenomenal job of saying, hey, step two, we're made in the image of God, but the image has been distorted. And they looked at the the famous passage, you might know it, from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and sit under God's judgment rightfully because of their sin. I remember on the day that we talked about this passage in our church group time, Jackson Habegger, our very own, afterwards quoted that verse from memory back to me. He said, hey, what stood out to you from this day? And he said, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That passage just left off, leapt off the page in his heart. So we still bear God's image, even after the fall. We still have this unique capacity, value, responsibility as we talked about, after the fall. But but sin has distorted the image. Sin has stained our lives and our world and the works of our hands. And at camp, they used a helpful illustration, as they often do, to get the students to connect with this. They said, think of a famous image. And so they said, hey, think of the Mona Lisa. And actually, in their little camp Bible study book, they had a picture of the Mona Lisa. This famous painting, this famous image that right away when we see it, we all know. They said, now I want you to think about if that image got distorted. And they got to draw in their book uh, a distortion of the image. I think we have an image of one of those uh, on the next screen. The Mona Lisa's, you know, got a kind of pilgrim's hat, some angry, you know, war paint, a, a mustache, and a neck tattoo that says, go Raiders. Okay, it's just, it's gone all wrong for the Mona Lisa. 
So think about how this, you've been made in the image of God, and yet that image has been distorted and tainted and affected by sin. And so actually all of our thoughts and actions and endeavors uh, have this underlying effect of sin impacting them. It's why our world looks the way that it does. And that's a silly illustration. And yet, as we talked about it at camp, it was actually incredibly heavy and sobering to think about sin in our own hearts separating us from God, to think about sin in our world and how it's just caused such pain and havoc. And even as I thought about those, our students, but even more the students at camp and talking with other leaders, we just see so much pain. Even in these young students' lives, <clears throat> things they're wrestling with, things they've been through, and we look out at the world and we think about sin, we think about loneliness, we think about anger and violence and, and racism and poverty and greed, and we say sin has distorted our world. I was actually talking last night uh, out in our front yard with a handful of our neighbors, um, and had a great conversation with them. We told them how we just got back from camp and how wild that was and just getting, hearing a bit more about their week. And neighbors, if you're listening, hello. We love you guys. You stumbled across this recording somewhere. Um, but one of our neighbors told us in his own words, hey, uh, as the topic of church and church camp and youth camp came up, he, he again let us know uh, that he's a staunch atheist. In, in his own words, he's like, hey, this is, this is where I'm at. And I asked him about that. I asked him, hey, did you grow up in a religious family? Um, when did you become an atheist? Tell me about how that looked in your life. And he, he told me some of his story. And I really enjoyed just getting to sit there and, and hear his heart and, and listen to his story and some of his, his thoughts. Um, but one of the sticking points for him that he brought up, one of the reasons he's an atheist uh, for what he, what he said was, that, hey, there are, there are people suffering throughout the world. The problem of evil, the problem of suffering. He specifically mentioned uh, those uh, kids in poverty in third world countries that are, are starving. And he says, oh, there's a God. He must not love everyone because look at the state of our world. And I said, well, actually, I, I think God does love everyone wherever they are. And he said, well, then he's not doing a very good job of loving them because look at the pain and suffering that so many are going through. <clears throat> it's a weighty thought. And the conversation got interrupted, as they often do, and kind of like moved along with the group on to a new topic before I was really able to respond. Uh, but in my head, what I was thinking, or what I, what I wish I would have said or could have said was, hey, first of all, you're right. There's a lot of pain and brokenness in our world. On that, we can agree. And I think as we often talk to people out in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, that's uh, some common ground that we can share with them. As we look out at the world, I think we can agree that the world is not as it's supposed to be. Right? I haven't come across many people who are like, yeah, things are just like humming along in all areas throughout the world. No, people are aware of their own pain and suffering and, and the, the pain in the world. So, hey, we, we can agree on that. But where I don't think we agree is that I want to look at that and say that's evidence of God's absence. 
I think it's actually evidence of something else. It's evidence of the doctrine of sin. It's evidence of the reality of sin. It's not a moral failure on God's part. God is perfect and holy. But what we see in the world is because of our sin. The reason exploitation and poverty and injustice in the world exists is because of our sin. I would have also pointed out how the church, how believers throughout the world are, are leading the way in generosity and crisis relief and care for those in poverty. How the church has always been leading the way, really, uh, pioneers of orphan care and care for women, uh, literacy, education, starting hospitals, mercy ministry of so many varieties. So yes, it's a broken world, and that shows us the reality of sin and how we need a rescuer. We need God to come and help us and how his church actually is being mobilized to meet the needs of the world with great love. So I love how with the image of God and then image distorted, students at camp were taught this reality of their own sin and the fact that they need a savior. But I also love that our students were not left there. The doctrine of sin and the teaching of scripture is not intended to leave us just in despair and hopelessness and look at you, aren't you so bad? No, we need to see the bad news of sin in order to celebrate and embrace the good news of the gospel. That God made a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to right relationship with him and then sent out as agents of his love and grace in our world that is hurting and broken. And so after image of God was the topic of image distorted, and then came the next day the topic of image renewed. And that it's through the work of Jesus that we can be transformed, restored, reconciled to God. And the key text that they use for that one, again, you might know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Or your translation might say, uh, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. So God didn't leave us in our sin. Nobody came to us. And if we are in Christ, and because God so loved the world, whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. They would not perish and so we have the great hope of the gospel that no matter how big our sin is, God mercy, God's mercy and grace is bigger. He died for you. He loves you. He invites you to come to him through the work of Christ on the cross. And that message is so desperately needed for our young people and our students, but it's also desperately needed for us adults in the room. We need reminders each week of the grace of God, the good news of the gospel, God's love for us in Christ, how he saved us, and how we stand now forgiven and redeemed and renewed. And so in just a moment, we're going to celebrate the gospel by taking communion together as a church family. But before we do that, I just wanted to leave some space for us to pray quietly where we are for our students and for the next generation that we're bringing up in this church, whether it's our kids ministry or our teenagers. And there's just going to be a few prayer prompts 
on the screen. Because one of the things that uh, I was hit with this week uh, was just over and over again, sometimes how overwhelming the needs are of our world and how ministry sometimes feels impossible. And sometimes we don't see immediate fruit. And I had to remember that this is a spiritual work, that there are things uh, that only God can do. Only God can convict by his spirit. Only God can convict our students of their sin and need for a savior. Only God can give the gift of faith. Only God can transform someone who is dead and make them alive. And so it would be foolish for us to try and just run our youth programs and run our outreaches and do kind of our weekly gatherings and run out ahead without crying out to God for his hand, for his power, for his work uh, to be done in the lives of our students. And again, that's why I'm so grateful that so many of you were praying for us this week at camp. We felt it. But, but I'm convinced even more now that we just need to continue to be a people of prayer so that when we do see fruit, when we do see kingdom impact, when we do see lives change, we would know, hey, it's, it's not because of us. It's because we have been, been humbly crying out to God for him to do what he alone can do. You know, next year at camp, the theme is revival generation. It's actually really cool if you think about it, how, how there's this belief and this, this prayer and this desire to see this next generation uh, experience revival and awakening and a great passion for the Lord and a great hunger for the Lord. But what always precedes revival, if you look throughout church history, what always precedes revival, wherever it's sprung up, is confession of sin and persistent prayer. And so I just want to leave a few minutes, and we have some background music playing, uh, to invite you to join me and our church in praying over our students, praying for our young people. Again, you just do that quietly where you are, um, and then after a few minutes, I'll close us in prayer. Again, there's some prompts on the screen if you need a little guidance. Um, let, me st let me start us off. Oh, Father, we, we love you, and we thank you for your great love for us. And Lord, we want to be a praying church. We want to be a church that is humbly on our knees before you, saying, Lord, would you do a mighty work in the lives of our students and young people? Lord, they are the future of the church. There are men and women our youth, in our youth group that you're going to raise up as leaders, as, as pastors and missionaries and servants in the kingdom. Would you raise them up for your glory? Would you do a mighty work in their hearts that you alone can do? Would you hear our prayers now?
thank you that you hear our prayers. And it's our joy and privilege to just cry out to you on behalf of our kids and students and the next generation um, of this church, of your church, of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would create in them, stir in their hearts, a true spiritual hunger for you. Lord, help them seek you and find you. Pray they would know your hand upon their lives, that they would trust in you, that they would hear your voice. And Lord, we pray that we would see uh, leaders for your church raised up through uh, these ministries to our students and young people. Lord, we see pastors and leaders and missionaries and worship leaders and Bible study leaders and small group leaders and teachers uh, raised up from this group. Lord, we entrust them to you. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, friends, as we... Um, as we're drawing near to the close of our service, we have a chance just to respond and celebrate the gospel in a real tangible way by taking uh, the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Christ given for us and shed for us on the cross. This is the center of our hope. Uh, the center of the good news is the cross of Christ and his resurrection. And so regularly, uh, twice each month here as a church family, we celebrate communion. We practice an open table, which means uh, if you're here, uh, even if you're not a member or you're just visiting or from another church, um, if you have put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us. If that's not you, um, and you're not a believer, uh, we encourage you to just remain seated and reflect on the things that we've talked about this morning. Um, that also means, hey, for, for parents with maybe small kids in here, if they are not believers or have not made that decision for Christ yet, uh, they can remain or just they can walk up with you, but we ask that they wouldn't take the elements until they've put their faith in Christ. Um, I'm going to pray for us and then we invite you to join us. There's two tables up front. Uh, after prayer, we'll partake. Father, we love you and we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us on the cross, to take our sin and shame upon himself, to take the punishment for sin for us so that we could be forgiven, renewed, transformed, given the gift of eternal life, not by our works or works of the law, but righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. We thank you for these elements, the bread and cup representing the body and blood of Jesus given for us. 